The Energy Gang is brought to you by SunGrow, a leading provider of PV inverter solutions across the world. SunGrow is also providing energy storage systems to some of the largest projects in the U.S., like the Chisholm Grid Project in Fort Worth, Texas. Chisholm Grid is a 100-megawatt standalone battery storage installation expected to start operation in the middle of this year, providing energy and grid services to the growing Texas market. Learn more about SunGrow's energy storage solutions by emailing them at info at sungrowamericas.com. The Energy Gang is brought to you by SNC Electric. New technologies are unlocking innovative ways to solve power-related challenges. Conventional wired approaches may still be viable, but they're not always the best solution. Today, non-wires alternatives like microgrids can provide sustainable, resilient, and economic ways to deliver reliable power. SNC Electric Company has provided innovative power solutions for over 100 years, and it helps utility and commercial customers find the best solutions to meet their energy needs. Learn more at snc.com slash nwa. This is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. During the height of the pandemic in 2020, venture capital poured into climate technologies at record levels. It was a happy surprise amidst a collapsing economy and years of investment stagnation. And as founders and investors venture out into the world again, the money is only coming in faster. This week, climate tech isn't just having a moment, it's having an age. Why we are at the start of a climate tech era in venture capital. Hi, Catherine. How are you? Doing great. It's actually very much go time in Congress right now. So um, a lot of my energy is being put into that. You look like you're out in the mountains still. Judging by your background. Yeah, it doesn't matter where you work because everything is still virtual, luckily. I mean, the Senate, when I was, I've been watching a hearing today, it, they're all there and all their staff are there, but they certainly aren't taking meetings in person at this point. So I've been able to be pretty efficient and get things done from wherever I am. I was wondering where you were before we recorded. And early this morning, as I was putting together show notes, I checked Twitter to see if I could see any updates. And sometimes I just lazy and I Google someone's name and Twitter. And there's another Catherine Hamilton out there who's the food editor for Pomo Magazine, whose tagline is always looking for an excuse to eat butter, which I thought was quite funny. Oh, most people tell me that when they Google Catherine Hamilton, they find a woman who makes underwear for large women. So. <laughs> I didn't see that one. Yeah, she does nice stuff, evidently. Well, let me Google our guest here, our guest co-host, Emily Kirsch and Twitter. No other Emily Kirsch out there. I see Emily Kirsch, the Woo! founder and CEO of Powerhouse <laughs> and the managing partner at Powerhouse One of a Ventures. kind, a unicorn. <laughs> a unicorn. <laughs> Hi, Emily. Hello. Hi, Stephen. Hi, Catherine. I am honored to be here with you. Thank you for having me. Emily is a familiar voice on this show. She's been the host of What It Takes, an entrepreneurship podcast about founders in the climate tech world. And the show started right here as a partnership with Green Tech Media and Ener in the Energy Gang, and now it's a spinoff series. So I see you regularly in that closet of yours. <laughs> I am in this closet. May no one ever see what it looks like when I'm recording what it takes or with you on the Energy Gang. Emily is back here with us to tackle many of the underlying dynamics that are either propelling or holding back clean tech and climate tech companies. And so the, the venture world and the world of Silicon Valley tech companies is certainly moving once again. And interestingly, even though things froze up last year for a while, 
there was a lot of movement in deal flow in climate tech venture capital. In fact, venture investments topped $17 billion in 2020 across more than 1,000 deals. Five years ago, it had fallen to $5.2 billion, which was a 30% decrease from a previous peak in 2011. And we all know what happened in 2011. That is when Solyndra went bankrupt and a handful of other companies went bankrupt and all of a sudden venture investors left the space. But suddenly it's cool to be putting your money into the sector again. And I think there's something different about today's enthusiasm. And that's what I want to hear from both of you about. This first wave was all about the coolness of clean tech. You know, we had thin film solar companies taking in a bunch of money, electric sports cars, printable batteries. It, it was all about uh, proving cost curves as well. And today there's a lot more technological maturity. You have a lot more scale in manufacturing. We have bigger and better data, more resources for startups to tap. And there's also this deep moral responsibility that is infused with the investments we're seeing. If you're running a major VC firm or corporate venture arm, you're out of the loop if you don't have a climate component to your portfolio. Andrew Beebe of Obvious Ventures argues we've entered the climate decade in VC. And I think we're talking about well beyond a decade here because these are structural changes that are not shifting for anybody. They are only getting more solidified. So what are, what results do we expect from the mainstreamification of climate tech? Let's just take a step back, because in these conversations, it's always helpful to understand where we came from. Catherine, you worked for a private equity company called Good Energies in 2007 and 2008. That was when this first uh, round of activity was picking up. What was the scene like then? Yeah, it's interesting because I still stay in touch with all those folks. Richard Kaufman was the CEO, and uh, he, he and I remain in touch constantly on a number of projects. Sean Peterson, who's now doing the Climate Fund for Wellington was there at the time. I was hired ostensibly to do policy. Remember, this was before the Obama administration came in. And when Obama came in, you know, there was this promise of CO2 regulation and a stimulus bill that would be really focused on clean tech. But before that, it was there was really not that much policy to focus on. So I instead, because I had come up through utility and had done a lot in technology and had worked at the National Renewable Energy Lab also in technology, I ended up doing a lot of diligence kind of work and, and investigating the technologies. And a couple of things really stuck out. One was that there wasn't that much policy conversation. And so you know, that I think we can talk about at some point is really important to investment. Um, but the other piece is a lot of these companies had really good ideas, but the market wasn't clear. How are they going to actually get into the market? Where was the market going? And so some of it was really, it was about investing a lot of money in propositions that were pretty expensive to develop, but there really wasn't a sense of when you hit the next valley of death, what's going to pull you out? What's the hope? Emily, when you were first starting Powerhouse in 2013, that was right when the we were in the trough of investments. What were investors and partners telling you at that time? Did you experience a lot of doubts when you were setting up the firm? Definitely. Yeah, when I was starting Powerhouse in 2013, investors were absolutely telling me that they got burned on clean tech and they had no interest in making bets in the space, in some cases, ever again. 
But as you know now, leading PostScript, part of being an entrepreneur is taking risks that others won't take and ignoring the doubters when you have conviction. And so despite those conversations and despite the downswing, I had nothing but conviction that the rise of renewables and batteries and the electrification of transportation was inevitable, in part because of just looking at the global levelized cost of energy decline trajectory, as well as the renewable share of global installed capacity, that trajectory. Both of those were so clear, even at that time, that this transition is inevitable. And uh, and so I ignored the doubters and ignored the investors who said they weren't interested in our space. And I'm happy I did. <laughs> Have you heard from any of those doubters now? Are they <laughs> investing in the space? Are they partners? They definitely are. Yep. Yep. Partners investing in climate tech, um, starting new funds. And, and it's great to see. And actually, and, and some aren't. And that that's OK, too. So, Catherine, what are the conditions today that you think are contributing to this new surge that we're seeing? Yeah, I'm going to reference uh, a newsletter by Kimberly Zhu and Sophie Purdom from cleantech, climatetechvc.org. And they say, you know, there are a few things in climate tech that have always been true. One is that climate is technology. It's it's a, across a lot of different sectors. It's measurable so you can tell when you're making a difference. And the third thing is that it, it really encompasses the entire economy. So it takes a village, they say. And they say, what's different this time than earlier when we were really focused on clean tech, uh, which was much more about energy and efficiency um, and less about just holistically society that now climate tech is is broader, of course, as I said, you have to decarbonize and adapt all sectors, um, that it's much more tangible. So it has a real difference in people's lives now they're living it and we can see it right now um, and there are fundamental technologies advance technology advances that Emily alluded to in renewables and batteries that have really allowed us to have a lot more solutions um, there's rigorous international climate policy that is something I will continue to talk about is the the need for policy to really signal to investors uh, where we need to go um, there's also much more demand from public markets and institutional investors. Um, ESG money is out there. So there's a lot more pull. And then all these corporate decarbonization commitments, the corporates are on board and are also have also changed the landscape of investment. Uh, I think Catherine nailed it. Um, the only thing that I would add is... The fact that we are all as individuals starting to directly experience the impacts of the climate crisis, you know, the Texas deep freeze, the heat wave recently in the Pacific Northwest, the fact that we now have a fire season and it gets earlier and earlier every year. You know, I'm in the San Francisco Bay Area where the forecast is that this year's wildfire season is likely to be the worst one yet. Um, already this year, more than 16,000 acres have burned, and that is compared to 4,000 that burned by this time last year. So I think individuals, including myself, are feeling the impacts in a way that it is visceral, in a way that it never has been before for many of us. So I think that's uh, one of the meaningful factors. Um, another, and, and Catherine alluded to this, that 
millennials and Gen Xers are putting the climate pressure on in a way that that is new. And I, as a very old millennial, I think I, I feel okay saying we are now the largest consumer group with ever-growing spending leverage and influence, and that's making a difference. Uh, and then all of the policy and regulation pieces that Catherine has led on for decades, I think are very much noteworthy. What all these points are culminating in is the fact that according to the new Future of Climate Tech report that was released just yesterday from our friends at Silicon Valley Bank, venture capital fundraising for climate tech-focused funds in 2021 is on track to hit a record $21 billion. And similarly, capital flowing from venture capital funds to climate tech companies is on track to reach $49 billion, according to this new SVB report. Um, So I'm excited to dig into more of that today in terms of what's happening in the climate tech space because of these factors that Catherine just mentioned. The thing that stands out for me is the cultural shift. And I think there's this moral component to uh, generational perceptions and experiences with climate change. There is this shift in the broader tech sector away from companies that are just selling you Instagram ads and taking your data and a lot of skepticism about the first generation of social media companies and the ethical components of how those companies operate. And investors are looking for new places to put their money. And now that we're experiencing climate change every day. It is so obvious that it is uh, getting more intense seasonally. A lot of these investment firms are realizing that they have this moral component to their portfolios that they may not have felt a decade or 12 years ago. And a lot of the people and talent that they're trying to attract and invest in are telling them that this moral component is important to them. So that feels extremely important And then you have the experience of someone like Elon Musk, who could very well become the world's first trillionaire. This year, or in 2020, he became the world's richest person. And he did that by creating a form of a climate tech company, right? By leading with this vision of electric cars and batteries and solar. And Kara Swisher in the New York Times pointed that out at the beginning of 2020, saying, hey, y'all, you better wake up to climate change because the money is being made here. So those factors seem incredibly important underlying the the deal flow that we're seeing. Yeah, but remember when he started, he was really a niche. He was he identified something he could do really well with EVs and he became really successful at that. He didn't start off by doing all of these other things at once. He really made sure that he would succeed in the same way that Plug Power really focused on forklifts run by fuel cells. It was very much of a specific market that they could develop and become really good at and then have a lot more ability to move into other areas by using those learnings. I do mostly agree with that in terms of execution, but one of the first public pieces of writing that Elon put out about the company was all about integrated electric vehicles, solar and batteries and creating a clean energy future very early on in the company. It wasn't about necessarily just creating a better drivetrain and moving on from that. It was about this holistic vision. And a lot of early investors, the folks who were focused on the climate tech space, saw that and invested in the company and believed in the company even when it was struggling. So I do agree with you in terms of execution that they took this phased approach and did it well and moved on to the next thing. But the vision, the climate and clean energy vision was always there. The other outcome that I love from Tesla's journey is that Tesla cars represent, I believe, about 10% of global EVs. 
And that's what's most notable for as much attention as Elon and Tesla get. What they've sparked is a global movement to accelerate the transition to electrified transportation decades ahead of when it otherwise would have happened. And I think that's the power of entrepreneurs is to be the catalyst and push incumbents in a way that they would never move as quickly otherwise. So I think that's that's what's most notable is that 90% of EVs in the world are, are not Teslas, um, but those EVs exist because of Tesla. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about some more numbers. Where are we seeing sectoral interest. Emily, what what are the numbers telling you? Yeah. So according to a great report from PwC from 2013 to 2019, uh, so pretty much the entirety of Powerhouse's existence, we've seen the top three sectors in climate tech investment uh, be first mobility and transport. Uh, this was by far the largest with about $37 billion in investment or 63% of total climate tech investment. Uh, a lot of that was attributed to heavy investment in EVs in China, um, but also investment into micromobilities. Some of the areas of electrification of mobility that are most interesting to us at Powerhouse Ventures are connected vehicle solutions. So vehicle to infrastructure and vehicle to grid, um, everything battery, especially uh, BMS, um, but other more hard tech focused areas like additives for lithium ion batteries, new designs, recycling. Um, there's a lot of really interesting non-road solutions around port systems, rail, marine and air. The transportation sector has also seen massive funding rounds for EV companies spurred by the success of Tesla and Rivian. Uh, the second biggest area was food and ag and land use with about 8 billion or 14% of total investment. Uh, this included plant-based meat and precision agriculture. As someone who doesn't eat food, if it has a face, I'm very excited about this, um, although it's not something we invest in. Uh, and then third is energy, which accounts for about 5 billion of investment. This includes generation and storage uh, and about 8% of total climate tech investment. It is worth noting that energy and power account for 73% of global emissions. And so we would love to see that 8% increase significantly given the opportunity to reduce emissions through innovation. Um, this year alone, transportation and logistics are on track to receive about $20 billion in venture funding, while energy and power are capturing the majority of angel and seed stage investing, which is what we do at Powerhouse Ventures. Uh, some of the kind of hot clean tech themes in the past 12 months include circular economy and supply chain, uh, climate fintech, so risk analysis modeling, climate financing, using AI and geospatial analytics for carbon markets, green hydrogen and direct air capture. At Firehouse Ventures, a couple of the things that we're most interested in are fintech for quantifying climate risk, uh, renewable energy and electric vehicle marketplaces, and software and financial technology to enable the proliferation of electric vehicles and charging infrastructure. Catherine, what among that wide range of sectors jumps out at you? Yeah, it's like everything. <laughs> it's a new way to new way to look at infrastructure. It's everything. Yeah, so a couple of things that I note it are first, you know, back in the 2008-2009 when I was running Gridwise Alliance, there were a lot of entrepreneurs and innovators. And in fact, um, I think innovation in grid technologies had become quite democratized. And a lot of people were, and I know Emily can track this too, it was software, it was hardware, it was everything. And there were a lot more entrepreneurs, and yet 
trying to find utilities that would buy this stuff was next to impossible. So there's just a road side of failed companies that weren't able, even though the entrepreneurs were there doing this work, they weren't able to de-risk it enough for utilities. And utilities are in a really different place right now. I mean, they have to move forward. Um, there are wildfires, other, you know, the sag caused by the heat in the North Pacific Northwest. All of these issues are causing utilities to now look at technologies differently and I think look at risk differently. So kind of the utility space, the grid space is really interesting to me because I've been doing that for all of my life. Um, and the other piece is that there just are now more markets for this. So you're you're able to monetize things you weren't able to monetize. And as Emily said, in you know forestry, in ag, it used to be in mining, you used to be able to, you know, you would make money exploiting, not protecting. And now you can actually monetize the protection of these resources differently. And I think that is a really interesting space. And all the investors I talked to said those were those were places they were looking because you could monetize them now. But I don't think that was the case 10 years ago. I love that framework shift, Catherine. That, that just sounds right and long overdue to think about not extraction and exploitation, but monetizing the protection of the resources that sustain our existence as a species. One of the things, I talked to Nancy Fund, who is the queen of all investors. <laughs> Love her. Um, From DBL Investors. That's right. And she said, there's also been this tremendous, not just democratization of innovation, but a democratization of tools. So a lot of the tools that were really only available to like Department of Defense and NASA are now available to citizen scientists and folks like the Sierra Club, where you can look at all kinds of data and use tools that are readily accessible and democratized and really allow many more people to participate. And and that's created a whole nother ecosystem of people willing to you know, jump in and innovate. Catherine, your previous comments felt like a really helpful distinction between clean tech and climate tech, because a lot of clean technologies are climate technologies. And very often there isn't a distinction. But when it comes to the investment thesis around climate tech versus clean tech, climate tech is all about slashing emissions. It, you have this very clear climate focus, whereas clean tech um, wasn't always necessarily about the carbon reductions. You, it was just a nice to have. But now it's a must have. And that to me feels different in the way that investors are evaluating deals. Emily, do you see that play out? Is there like a functional change in the way companies may be evaluated by investors? I do like that framing. I think even calling it climate tech, it it roots us in part of the purpose behind the investments that we make. You know, yes, this is about capital and returns and the opportunity there, but it it is also about it is about the climate and calling it climate tech roots our investment decisions in something that is not just about the return. So I like that framing. Um, and I think we are seeing that play out with investors with all of the new players that are entering the space, uh, joining the DBLs of the world led by Nancy, who have been at it for a long time, along with um, SJF and other investors that that have been doing this work for 
longer than than anyone else. Um, but it is exciting to see the generalist VCs start to play in the climate space. And one of the funds that's gotten a lot of attention, I think, for good reason is Union Square Ventures and their new climate fund. Uh, we've been happy to co-invest with them uh, to share deal flow. Their partner and the champion of their climate fund, Albert Wenger, has joined our fund as a as an investor, our second fund. Um and then we're seeing CVCs participate in a way that they never have before. Today, there's almost 2,000 corporates that engage in corporate venture capital, which is more than double uh, what the numbers were a decade ago. Some of the biggest ones that we all now know about are Microsoft's uh, billion-dollar climate innovation fund, Amazon's $2 billion, Amazon's $2 billion climate pledge fund, Unilever's climate and nature fund, that's a billion dollars. And so we're seeing all this new activity from generalist VCs, from corporate venture capital, along with family offices, hedge fund, impact investors, program-related investments from the philanthropic sector, uh, venture debt providers, you know, all of this is new and it does change how entrepreneurs are able to take risk and have the capital that they need to build the solutions that that we need to both address the climate crisis and realize substantial returns for those who take that risk. Yeah, and that's not even to mention all these celebrities that are investing, like the Emmas, Emma Watson and Emma Stone. Emma Watson has invested in a biotech company called Fabric Nano that deals with plastics. And uh, it's interesting to see all those younger celebrities jumping in. Uh, I had this quote here from, speaking of Union Square Ventures, I have this quote up here from Fred Wilson, one of the uh, co-founders of Union Square Ventures, who says in a piece from earlier this year that Union Square Ventures has begun a reallocation of capital that will be investing heavily in companies and technologies that can help the world address the existential threat of climate change. And that is just not language that you would have heard from investors a decade ago. Even those firms that were investing in clean tech companies. Emily, if you were starting Powerhouse Ventures, so you had this venture arm now, if you were starting the venture arm in 2013 versus today, do you think that the language and thesis that you would be developing would be different? I think it would be as much as I would like to think that I would have come up with or embraced climate tech as a term. Uh, I don't know if I would have. Um, uh, I think that the mission, the thesis, the structure would be the same, but the language might be a little bit different. As someone who's spent my entire career working in this space, driven by a purpose to make a, make a meaningful impact in addressing the climate crisis, to see the world from asset managers to corporations to governments to individuals embrace the need to develop these solutions and to get them to scale as quickly as possible, it's, it's something that I'm really happy to see. The Energy Gang is brought to you by SunGrow. SunGrow is the leading global supplier of inverter solutions for renewables. This year, SunGrow is also supplying more than 1.5 gigawatt hours of energy storage technology to projects across North America. Among these projects is the Chisholm Grid Battery Energy Storage Project in Fort Worth, Texas, which is owned by Astral Electricity and was developed by Able Grid and MAP. Along with the lithium-ion batteries, Chisholm Grid will use SunGrow's advanced converters and controls in a long-term services contract to meet the growing ERCOT market conditions while reducing operating costs and extending the lifespan of the assets. And SunGrow isn't just supporting energy providers and Fortune 500 companies with their deep decarbonization goals. It's also making those commitments for itself. 
In the last year, SunGrow joined RE100 with a commitment to switch its power needs to 100% renewable energy by 2028. To learn more, email info at sungrowamericas.com. We're also brought to you by SNC Electric. Power-related challenges and opportunities are becoming more complex. Reliability concerns, rising energy costs, cybersecurity risks, they can all jeopardize operations, while new technologies like electric vehicles and microgrids offer great potential. If you're a utility or commercial enterprise today, you're faced with a critical decision. Select a conventional wired approach or respond in a non-conventional way. Even with dedicated in-house resources, arriving at a conclusion can be an uncertain and time-consuming process. You can evaluate these big decisions more efficiently and with more confidence by working with an experienced integrator like SNC Electric Company. SNC will be with you every step of the way, thoroughly working through your challenges and reviewing your energy needs to offer an expanded set of solutions developed specifically for you. Learn more at snc.com/nwa. So let's talk further about what this all means for the people starting or running companies. I want to touch on the 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 powerhouse focus and what it says about the differentiation between a hardware focus and a software focus. There's been this in the post 2011 investment world, this consensus that like investing in hardware is really difficult and doesn't bring great returns. And I saw this tweet from Craig Lawrence of Energy Transition Ventures showing some of the recent hardware uh, or deep tech investments in the clean tech space. You know, Tesla's worth $650 billion. Enphase is worth $25 billion. Solar Edge is worth $14 billion. ChargePoint is worth $9 billion. Nest exited for $3 billion. Uh, all VC-funded climate tech hardware unicorns. And he says, remind me again why you don't like hardware. But there's this perception that a lot of people don't like hardware. I do think that that's changing, and I want to talk about that a bit. But you've Powerhouse Ventures specifically focuses on software, why? Why is that your focus? Yep. Uh, we we like both. So it's not that we don't like hardware. Um, uh, and we need both. So while our fund exclusively invests in software, our innovation firm, which is the company, the original Powerhouse started in 2013, Powerhouse, the company has a database of thousands of startups, which we use in our work with corporate clients, which is evenly split between hardware and software because we know we need both and because our clients are interested in both. So it's very much, it's not an either or. I, I am reminded of a longstanding debate between your former third co-host, Jigger Shaw, who has also been on the What It Takes podcast, uh, between him and Bill Gates. And it was this constant argument between deployment versus breakthrough deep hard tech. And again, I don't think it's either or. But generally speaking, if I had to choose a side, I would side with Jigger in the deployment camp, meaning so much of the technology that we need to address the climate crisis already exists. It's been de-risked. It's a question of scale and how to get these technologies like wind and solar and electric vehicles to scale as quickly as possible. And that's where we come in. So oftentimes we're backing startups that are building software and financial technology to enable that financing and deployment. Uh, and part of the reason we do that is 
because of the time scale that we're working on to address the climate crisis. You know, yes, we need the breakthrough technologies. And in the meantime, we need to be scaling that which we have already spent decades working on and perfecting, getting that to scale um, in the time that we have. And in addition, software does have significantly faster paths to commercialization, lower capex, an ability to scale rapidly. And all of that means that the deployment of existing technology that works can can happen more quickly. Catherine, you talked to a bunch of VCs in preparation for the show. Did any of them make this distinction between hardware versus software, high capex versus low capex, high risk versus lower risk? Yeah, so Nancy Fund did say that there's plenty of appetite for late stage, more commodity type products like charging infrastructure, but there's still a lot of room for early stage um, investments. I did reach out to Dave Danielson, who's with Breakthrough Energy Ventures, uh, to talk about what they do because they do this like kind of tough tech that you know something like the MIT engine would start with, and you know, they they're a, they're a slow growth, very patient investor. You know, twenty year funds that they have for their companies, and you know his attitude is certainly look the. The investments that we made early on in photovoltaics, wind, batteries, LEDs, uh, you know, decades ago at the Department of Energy have, you know, really panned out now into, you know, very high yield and very low cost products. And they're looking at what are the megatrends? What do we, if if in 2050, we've solved the problem, which you better hope we have, what did it mean? And you see, so his view is we have to do a lot of different things. We have to look at, as I, as we said before, food waste, mining, methane, looking at sectors that are really difficult to uh, to mitigate industrial sectors. And that's kind of what they're looking at. But it didn't sound like anybody I spoke with thought that it was an either or situation. It was something, you know, Nancy Fund mentioned demand response aggregation in the same breath that she talked about forestry. So I think there's plenty of room for everybody. There's so much of our ecosystem is impacted and impacts climate. And we have to try everything. Yeah. And what's different today is that you do have these funds, some of which you mentioned, that are set up for more patient, longer term investment, the engine, prime impact fund, breakthrough energy ventures, congruent, they're doing much earlier stage deals and have, you know, much, much longer investment horizons. And that's very different from it was from where it was a decade ago. So there's just more places to get money from with different risk appetites and investment theses. Another thing I would mention uh, that Richard Kaufman talked to me about was project finance. So the Department of Energy has typically, and you'll see this with investors as well, but it's often in government funds where you'll have a pilot project built and then nothing happens. (laughs) And you get the pilot, you get another pilot, maybe it's death by pilot. Every single pilot project is bespoke. And you have to start over with each one and and it's never going to be cost effective and scale in that way. And I've recent conversations with folks at the Department of Energy have said, look, we and including Jigger have said we don't want to build the the one. We want to build the next 10, the next 100. We want to know that there's a pathway to scale. And I think that's really important. And it also shows that in addition to early stage investment, you have to look at all of the different valleys of death, including where you really need project finance to scale. Emily, what's interesting to you right now? 
Like you're obviously making the bets and the investments that you're making are an indication of where you and your team thinks the market is headed. So where do you think things are headed? So there's three primary categories that Powerhouse Ventures invests in uh, across across both energy and mobility. And so those three are software and deployment. So any, any software or fintech that enables the financing and deployment of renewable assets, storage, smart grid technology. Um, the second is asset management and optimization. So this can include uh, O&M, analytics and controls for storage, DER management systems. And then the third is what we call market access and participation. And this is the democratization of clean energy and mobility access. So this could be things like community solar, um, retail consumer engagement, energy trading platforms that engage new stakeholders, carbon trading marketplaces, things like that. So at a high level, that's that's our thesis. Um, more specifically, we have been spending a lot of time looking at fintech for quantifying climate-related risk, given everything we've talked about in terms of the climate crises that that we're all facing, the role that the insurance industry is starting to play in the climate tech space. Um, also very much interested in marketplaces, how to facilitate transactions of capital and resources um, in renewable energy and electric vehicles. Lastly, we've been digging into software and financial technology to enable the proliferation of things like EV charging infrastructure. Catherine, let's talk about the policy environment. Is this is it changing the way that investors view the sector? Are we seeing the movement? I know that there hasn't been as much movement as there has been talk about what could happen under the Biden administration, but still a lot of bullishness about how climate tech, clean tech will fare under this administration, is it having an impact today? Yeah, it's super interesting because when a, any company comes to me, I work with a lot of entrepreneurs um, and on how to solve policy issues. They may have a really interesting widget that they want to solve a problem with that will solve a problem. But if it depends on a policy that's not in place, that is required to to allow them to make money, it becomes really tricky. And I'll I'll go back to an example. Um, back in 2011, FERC enacted Order 755. And what 755 did, this was before the energy storage order, which allowed energy storage to do all kinds of things. This was when they allowed energy storage, and it was specifically driven by Beacon Power Corporation, which was a flywheel company. And they basically said, we can do frequency regulation. We can solve this issue that no one else can do. And batteries can do this as well. But they were really out in front. They had all the data to show exactly how they could do it. And the problem with that was that by the time the order was enacted, and then the, especially by the time it was really implemented in the markets, 2013, the company could not survive because everything that they had invented that would solve a problem was only going to make money if you could be paid to solve the problem. And so I think right now what we're looking at is we have a lot of problems across a lot of sectors, and the key will be can policy monetize it? Can policy help you be compensated for solving the problem? And that's what I spend a lot of time doing is thinking about, all right, what's your business case? What are you trying to solve for? And then how do we enable you to actually be compensated and paid for the value that you're providing. I think about this every day, whether it's in state or federal policy. And so I see policy ha as having huge implication on the success and failure of innovation for that very reason. 
I remember visiting Beacon's flywheel plant, actually. I have a, a, a ghost podcast out there. I went and I recorded a podcast from their plant. I don't know what year it was, but it was once on the internet. It's probably not out on the internet anymore. Yeah, they were bought in 2012 by Rockland Capital. I think they still may have some assets working in uh, Pennsylvania. There was a great company. I think it's now private. But um, yeah, it was just one of those that didn't make it because they were so dependent on something happening in policy. So this is obviously key to boosting the business plans of companies. But if they're relying on the federal government for some policy to magically make their business model happen, then then they're going to be facing a tough reality. But clearly, there's a lot of interest in this space. Is that materializing, Emily, for the companies that you are evaluating in the, the startup ecosystem generally? Is there kind of renewed interest in the space because of the policy momentum? There absolutely is. And I think it's a testament to Catherine and her work um, and all of those who work in the policy space, especially for generalist investors that are newer to the sector. Policy changes like FERC Order 222 as it relates to distributed energy resources and policies like that serve as an important market signal that there is an opportunity here for journalist investors to feel comfortable participating in. Um, and that plus Biden's transmission push for opportunities in long distance transmission and utility scale renewables, all of these serve as market signals for sector-specific investors like us, but also the generalists that are learning more about the industry and what can be enabled with policies like for quarter 2222. Well, there's also an issue of policy certainty. So if you watch the waxing and waning of all of the renewable tax credits, and you can see where investment would dry up, and then it would come back in, and it would dry up and come back in. Richard Kaufman was was noting to me that the biotech sector doesn't have that sort of valley of death because, well, let's say you're trying to cure cancer. It's not like cancer is going to wax and wane. It's going to keep going and you'll have a solution at some point. Um, either solution works or not, but the, the problem will still exist. And I think now we're at a place with climate that we're sort of in that place again where the problem is not going to go away unless we solve it. And it's not just going to be certainty of policy. I think the policy is going to continue because we we have to continue to move forward on climate. That will not go away. We can't have this conversation without talking about diversity in the space. And there is a much clearer focus on both diversifying cap tables for startups and for investors to find, um, you know, startups that are led by women and founders of color. How is that playing out in this space, Emily? It's a conversation that we weren't even really having, you know, five, six years ago in a really deep way that we're having it now. Agreed. Also, a conversation that that is long overdue and has been happening amongst many people for for a long time, but certainly not not yet in the mainstream, especially in industries like venture capital. So I'm happy you brought it up. Um, I think there's three areas of opportunity, two of which you mentioned. One is for entrepreneurs to think about diversifying their cap tables. And this is the responsibility of the founder to bring in diverse investors, encouraging founders to think not just about the diversity of their own team, uh, but their investors, because who you have on your board is going to, and who you have as investors is going to have implications for how you think about your own team, your product, who you can hire, what kind of talent you have access to. So so that's that's one opportunity. 
Uh, the second that you mentioned is um, investors supporting diverse founders, and this is the responsibility of fund managers who are making investment decisions. Um, we have found that, um, or studies have found that startups with a founder who is a woman fills their staff with two and a half times more women than startups that are just led by men. Um, uh, so, so there's an opportunity for fund managers to back diverse founders. And then third is building new systems that allow for diverse venture capital team members, fund managers, and in this case, general partners and fund founders are responsible um, to set the stage in terms of stats. Last year, just 15% of climate tech venture capital went to startups with at least one female founder, according to PwC. And from 2015 to 2020, Black and Latinx founders received just 2.6% of total venture capital funding, according to a report from Crunchbase. Uh, and to be clear, unfortunately, climate tech venture capital firms that are led by women or underrepresented people of color are almost non-existent. Um, we've talked about Nancy Fund, who started DBL, um, and who we've had uh, on our podcast, and, and you featured many times. Um, you know, she is certainly worth noting, because when I started Powerhouse Ventures, she was it. She was she was the only person who I could look to and say, here's, here's someone who is also a woman who has started a successful fund in this space. So very grateful for her leadership. Um, now, Amy Franchetic, who has started Buoyant Ventures, I'm happy to, to see her. Um, but Nancy, Amy, and, and, and myself with Powerhouse Ventures in terms of um, funds in the climate tech space founded by women, uh, I, I hope to learn of more um, uh, certainly want to note, you know, Prime Coalition and all of the great incubators and accelerators that are run by women. Um, but in terms of straight venture capital, they're, they're few and far between. Yeah, Nancy was telling me, uh, we're getting more women in the founders and on the teams of founders and the executive ranks, but there's still a lot to do. I focused a little bit more on the communities of color aspect and only 1% of VC-backed startups have black founders and only 3% of VC investors are black. And so there are two organizations that I was pointed to um, that are trying to make a difference on that. One is the Black Venture Institute, which uh, basically trains fund managers and angel investors of color um, and about 50 a year they have in their cohort to really help them on how they can become uh, really important investors and powerful investors in the space. And then there's also uh, Illumin Capital, which invests in fund managers to help them uh, learn how to access deals um, with founders of people of color. So I think there are some folks out there trying to make a difference uh, in the communities of color that we have a lot more work to do on. Um, and it's it's worth noting too that, yes, there is the moral argument for doing this, but there's also the fiduciary responsibility that we have to our investors and that every fund manager has to their LPs um, to, to do this because uh, study after study has shown um, that when you invest in teams that are led by diverse founders, they perform better. So in a study of over 350 startups led by BCG, they determined that businesses founded by women deliver higher revenue, more than two times as much per dollar invested than those founded by men, making women-owned companies better investments for, for their backers. 
despite the severe funding gap, startups founded and co-founded by women actually perform better over time, generating 10% more in cumulative revenue over a five-year period, according to Forbes. Yes, report after report finds the same thing. Credit Suisse, McKinsey, Boston Consulting Group, they've all found that you see better cash flow returns, higher profits, more revenue, the more diverse that your company is. Exactly. And that's one of The many reasons at Powerhouse Ventures, we do have an explicit and public commitment that a minimum of 25% of the companies and founders that we back are led by underrepresented people, meaning women, Black, Latinx, Indigenous, Indigenous, and or LGBTQ. And our current metric, we're at 30% of our portfolio that is founded and led by underrepresented founders. Uh, And so I hope that that can be a source of inspiration for other funds who have not yet made a similar commitment. And again, it's not just about the moral argument. It is about your fiduciary responsibility to your investors. So back to the premise of the show, PwC, a report you referenced at the beginning of the show, says there are dozens of unicorns that are ready to fly in the climate tech space. Andrew Beebe of Obvious Ventures calls this the climate decade. I think it's pretty obvious this is the climate century. Any predictions on how this is going to shake out in the venture space as we venture deeper into the decade? Catherine? So I think that we're going to see more focus back on what has been neglected over the last few years, which is buildings space. So you're just watching what happened in Miami and all the risks associated with building along coastlines. I think buildings and insure tech that goes along with that are going to be really important. I think if you look at what happened during COVID, and man, I wish I had invested in Zoom um, with remote work, online earning, so ed ed tech certainly uh, has taken hold, but also this need for residential, because more people are working at home or working from anywhere, they can find a desk, much more about resilience in the home and in buildings. So I I think resilience and building technologies are going to take off soon. And that's a that's as a direct result of sort of this combination of climate and COVID. Yeah, it's it's interesting because a decade ago a tech unicorn was a big deal. You know, unicorn unicorns were for the most part extremely well-known and noteworthy, you know, think of Airbnb and Uber. Um, Around 2013, when the venture capitalist Eileen Lee coined the term unicorn to refer to a private company with a valuation of over a billion dollars, there were 39 unicorns in 2013. Today, depending on who's counting, there are upwards of six or 700 unicorns. And in 2020, a new startup became a unicorn every three business days on average. And so this is the same trend that we will see in climate tech. Many of the early unicorns are now the big names like Tesla and Nest. Um, And by the end of this decade, a climate tech unicorn will no longer be remarkable. The opportunity is so massive to tackle the climate crisis that like in traditional tech, people won't think twice when they see another climate tech unicorn. And it'll probably just be thought of as a unicorn versus a climate tech unicorn at that point. Uh, As of today, there are 43 privately held venture-backed climate tech startups with valuations in the excess of a billion dollars. These unicorns are concentrated in the mobility and transportation areas and unsurprisingly represent firms founded relatively early in in the climate tech space, though it does suggest that there is room for many additional climate tech unicorns to come. That's a great place to end. 
Let's go to free electrons. Catherine, what's your free electron? Yes, I don't know if folks remember that the U.S. government does a national climate assessment. Uh, There was one that was released in 2018 during the Trump administration that basically said the climate is changing faster than at any point in history of modern civilization and pin the blame on human activities. And they said if it's unaddressed, it could cost the U.S. 10 percent of its gross domestic product. Uh, The President Trump actually disavowed the findings of that report, but the report does exist. Well, what uh, President Biden has done is he has now put in place Alison Cremens, who is from EPA, and she will be the next head of this National Climate Assessment, which is now going to be due out in the fall of 2023. So it'll be really interesting to see what they come out with. I think um, it's important that they're kind of revamping it and making sure that we capture you know, all of the data available, but also all of the policies that are going to be put into place um, over the next year or so. So looking forward to that. Emily, what's your free electron? Uh, as mentioned earlier, just yesterday, our friends at Silicon Valley Bank released their Future of Climate Tech report, which found that venture capital fundraising for climate tech-focused funds this year is on track to hit a record $21 billion. And similarly, capital flowing from climate tech venture capital funds into companies is on course to reach $49 billion. Uh, and I'm especially happy to note that uh, powerhouse former intern Eli Oftedal wrote the report along with four other authors. So shout out to Eli. Oh, man, our interns are going to run the world. They really are. <laughs> uh, I was struck by a recent news piece of news from GE. GE said that it plans to tackle scope three emissions from the gas turbines and other pieces of equipment that it makes. And I brought this up because we talked a little bit about, or at least referenced the increasing corporate venture commitments. And GE has actually made a bunch of interesting corporate venture investments in in clean tech over the years. And it has, of course, built up one of the biggest wind turbine businesses in the world. But it also made a pretty bad bet on its gas turbine business a few years back and way over-invested in the gas business generally. And as um, we built fewer gas plants around the world than expected, GE had to take a $23 billion write down. And so that to me was indicative of how the world is changing. But now GE says, look, we're going to take a look at all of our equipment that we make out in the world, whether it be jet engines or whether it be uh, gas turbines, whatever it is. And we're going to look at how to slash the fossil fuel use actually burned by those pieces of equipment. And that is the new world in which these large corporates are operating. A grabbing piece of news for me. Well, this was fun. Emily, thanks for thanks for joining us. Good to see you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's great to see you both and just very grateful to be on the show. We didn't even ask what animal you wanted to be. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah, definitely an elephant. Although tied with whales but yeah elephants great communicators matriarchal um, really really playful really creative um. what animal are you Catherine well it, there's a difference between like what animal I would want to be and what animal I like the best like I like dogs the best but I don't want people pa- you know, like patting me so you know, I probably end up being a, <laughs> probably a bird of some sort there's also what do you want to be and what do other people think you would be is there a difference between those two <laughs> I have no idea I don't think I'm going to ask <laughs> well, well, we'll come back to you on that. If you are confused, all you have to do is just listen to what it takes because at the end of each episode, we do Emily does a high voltage round where she asks all the guests these 
very difficult, simple but difficult questions that speaks to how they run companies and how they manage all the conditions out in the world that make it difficult, challenging, and inspirational to start a company. We are the Energy Gang. Thank you so much for being here. Hit us all up on social media to comment on this episode and tell us what animal would you be. And uh, if you're starting a company, tell us about the conditions that you're facing right now. We would love to hear from you. Thanks for being here. This is the Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. 